Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to the Free Marketeers podcast. I hope you're all doing well. In this episode, I've got a very special guest, um, someone I've looked up to for a very long time, someone I, whose writings I try to follow, whose research I always try to look at. Uh, if you don't follow him yet on Twitter, hopefully after this, uh, this episode, you will and you'll read his articles and also those of the organization for which he works and which he represents. Uh, my guest on this episode is Jeffrey Tucker, the Editorial Director of the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's, it's always good to talk to people from around the world during these terrible times. We're all going through something very similar, unless you're in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an excellent note on which to start. Uh, it was one of my talking points, actually, that, and something I've, I've come to realize in the last week, everything that has made the lockdown even remotely bearable has been uh, provided to me through the private sector, through private enterprise, through people voluntarily interacting and producing goods, such as this computer on which I'm talking to you through Zoom. Of course, some people have their, their concerns about Zoom, but we'll leave that for another day. Um, but I thought, you know, I'd get your, thought, your thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, we've seen the damage that governments can cause just through acting unilaterally without consulting citizens in even in your remote way but the private sector despite the barriers always comes to the rescue in a funny way it's what's made lockdowns possible i think uh, i think back to a memo that carter meacher sent out in uh, march 12th he was a veterans administration consultant on bio warfare and he was a uh, part of an email list that was going around and and throughout february and march um, urging lockdowns, urging lockdowns. And then uh, on March 12th, he sent out a, a private email uh, to everybody saying that we needed to close schools. And his thinking was that uh, the, the students would welcome a chance to stay at home and just do Instagram. Those were his actual words. And, and that they don't, they all have laptops, so they don't really need to go to school anyway. <clears throat> and uh, so even even the lockdowners are citing the existence of, of private sector technology. They said everything's going to be fine. Amazon can bring the groceries. Um, uh, you know the, the kids can look at computers. People can t can talk on video conferencing. Uh, we can we can destroy the economy and and it, everything can go on as normal thanks to the private sector. So even the lockdowners were were happy about that. And it's very interesting to imagine the counterfactual where they have done this. Um, 20 years ago and I, mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's very unlikely actually so you make a really interesting point it's been our salvation the private sector at the same time I think the existence of the technology alone is what tempted them into thinking that this would be uh, possible at all mm -hmm. I think um, just touching on on the economic destruction of I'd like to get your perspective on how things are going in the US, we get an outsider's perspective, of course, and we get our news sources. Usually it's um, CNN. We don't get uh, Fox News here unless I think you use certain other illicit sources to get your news. So we get that perspective. Um, but just in, in South Africa, I think it's worth pointing out, of course, a lot of people following the FMF, the Free Market Foundation, will have followed our work throughout the lockdown. But this sort of suspension of economic activity itself is economic destruction. Uh, and you can't just restart an economy by the flip of a switch. It's not a, a dead, a dead thing as it were to me, it's a living organism, people interact, interacting, trading, that sort of thing, trying to create value. Um, and we can get onto the South African uh, destruction later on, but just uh, for you in the U S 
Um, is this a, a strong case for, I guess, the federal system? Maybe the difference between different states, where different states can apply different policies and uh, you know try and uh, address the sort of pandemic in their own way. Uh, we've also seen the bungling by the the Trump administration from the beginning. Um, so yeah, a few things there for you for you to touch on. Sure. You know, there were eight states in the United States that didn't finally shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you talk about a federal system. But the funny thing is that we have this, this thing called the Center for Disease Control. Every nation right. has one. It's like, you know, the, the health ministry, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, their job is to control diseases. <laughs> <laughs> didn't work out so well. But anyway, since 2000... You know, you could control a virus. It just it behaves very predictably. Yeah, yeah right? Uh, but since 2005, the CDC had, had lockdown plans. So 15 years ago, they were already talking about lockdown plans. In fact, I was just reviewing this morning the 2005 template from the CDC calling for, for lockdowns in the event of a pandemic. They talked mm-hmm. about shutting down schools, shutting down businesses, or banning large gatherings, uh, quarantines, and so on. So it was, it was all there um, from, from 2005. So, so in those fateful days of um, the second week of March here, the the uh, Trump administration had flipped. You know, uh, Trump had been a little bit laissez-faire on it, like, oh, it's not, it's, it's going to come mm-hmm. and go, it's no big deal. And then, uh, then the Neil Ferguson report came out of the Imperial College in, in London, predicting that 2.2 million Americans would die uh, unless there were mitigation efforts. You know, so these these fake bogus models, which themselves have been floating around for 15 years. Um, and we can talk about the origin of all this nonsense. Uh, but uh, so Trump panicked. So he ordered the CCD, CDC to deploy its central plan. Um, and, and that's why uh, it, it happened in uniform. Then the rest of the world looked at America, saw what America was doing, and the UK flipped at the same time. And then everybody, politicians all over the world panicked, panicked South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Israel, Spain, you know, everywhere. And even places where the virus wasn't, right? So in the southern states of the United States that had no virus yet, they all locked down. And then opened up later, and oh, guess what? The virus came, right? They didn't lock down again, so God bless them. Okay. But there were, there were eight states um, that said no, that they weren't going to do this. And it was entirely due to the political courage and discretion of the governors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in particular of the South Dakota case, uh, Christy uh, Naom. She, she refused to shut the bars, the restaurants, the theaters, or anything. And she just said, no, um, I don't believe these disease models no more than my citizens. Uh, I, I think that, that uh, there are plenty of scientists that, that have long said that this is a disastrous route and that, uh, that the, the worst thing you could do in the event of a pandemic is to disrupt the normal functioning of society because uh, we need, we need uh, freedom in order to mitigate disease and, and manage a, a, a pandemic, whether it's mild or, or serious. The mm-hmm. government makes no, uh, adds no, nothing. So she resisted, North Dakota resisted, Oklahoma, um, uh, Wyoming, and there are a number of other states. And, and so, yeah, in that sense, the federal system was good, but it took a lot of political courage and, uh, really something very special on the part of those governors to not do what everybody else did. So uh, otherwise, a centralized solution. Now, there are certain things that the governors couldn't control. For example, the travel bans, right? right? That was, that's also on March 12th. Uh, Trump went on the air and said, oh, by the way, um, uh, uh, starting on Monday, nobody can travel from Europe. Like, I'm sitting here listening to that going, can he do that? Can you mm-hmm. just say nobody can come to the United States? Like, I didn't even know he had that power. Um, and I think, 
and and it was a disaster by the way because then everybody had uh, wanted to come back had to um, Americans abroad mm-hmm. or or workers with visas had to book uh, very expensive tickets and and there was a mass rush on international airports in the United States Los Angeles and Chicago and next thing you know people were in and customs and immigration lines for eight to ten hours with uh, you know shoulder to shoulder you know at a time when we were being told to socially distance so it was it was it was just an amazing calamity and honestly I think the the sheer uh, sort of um, executive despotism that the country witnessed with Trump, and I think it inspired uh, uh, malicious politicians all over the country to go, mm-hmm. oh yeah, if you can do that, watch what I can do. Yeah. Quarantine, shut the bars, shut Broadway, and so on. So that's when the entire country locked down, just inspired by Trump. So some people think of Trump as like like a liberator in a way, like he's been better than the governors. I'm, I'm not really prepared to say that because really a lot of this began with his, his executive order in, in the first place. Now, it's true that in the meantime, about two or three weeks later, he started thinking maybe this wasn't going so well, and he began to call for opening up. But even that, he flipped. So the first state to open up was Georgia mm-hmm. uh, under Governor Kemp, who's a pretty good guy. And he said, all right, I'm opening up my state. And Trump uh, warned him not to do that, that it was too soon. Well, the virus hadn't even arrived in Georgia yet. Because, right. you know, the virus moves regionally, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so it finally got to Georgia. He didn't relock down. But you know what's funny about all this is that we, what we call open is mm-hmm. what we would have called closed six months ago. You sure. know? So, so even, in, even in Georgia, even in Atlanta, there's uh, uh, not a mask mandate, but a, but a lot of social pressure wearing masks. They, you still can't go to the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's no sports, you know. So it's not really open. It's just relatively open i guess you could say even the the one country well not the only one but one of the ones that sort of stood out in that way of eliminating the virus if you can eliminate a virus new zealand and they had packed stadiums full of rugby fans the last few months but now i see that uh, auckland is back under level three i think on on their scale so yeah just a complete misunderstanding i think of how economies and societies normally function and how they interact and as you say i think the bar for normal i mean i hate when people talk about the new normal i'm very worried about what the normal will be heading out of this just in south africa you know for example out of a population of about 55 million we had 10 million people unemployed before the pandemic and this sort of lockdown now you you're terrified to hear what the new figures are going to be um, given the country's fiscal situation. Um, but just moving on to a different sort of talking point around all this and Gene Epstein, he's, uh, I think he coined the phrase, it's the first place I read it, an article of his, the great suppression um, earlier this year. And I think that's an apt word for it. Do you think, I mean, I'm tying this into Friedrich Hayek and how he talked about the the knowledge problem and how central planners try and organize society according to the knowledge they have, but they can never account for the millions of interactions between people and the knowledge we have as individuals. So do you see this sort of hubris of the central planners now to fight a pandemic from a centrally controlled point of view as just another manifestation of what Hayek pointed to? It's a perfect manifestation of it. And in fact, I I think... So one of the mystifying aspects of of, um, uh, of what you're what, what we're witnessing right now is that we, I think, six months ago believed that we lived in the smartest society history's ever 
inhabited you know like we we've we're, we have these tools in our pockets that can access all human knowledge you know we have the ability to talk in real time through video chat and and our technology is is astonishing and and it led us to believe that that um we're an advanced people mm-hmm. you know that we have a great deal of knowledge unlike our ancestors who were mystical and superstitious and stupid but i think what we've learned is is something interesting that you can live in a, a within a smart institutions and be surrounded by to- smart technology but that's not a product of human intelligence it's a matter of uh, uh, the capacity of, of social institutions to absorb and extract knowledge uh, you know, um, dispirit that's that's radically dispersed, mm-hmm. and turn it into something that we can all use, and it's very impressive. But, but we make a mistake in in getting arrogant about it and thinking we have this remarkable ability to plan society. And um, uh, governors became uh, governments all over the world became just inf- inflated with a sense of like they're given they're taking credit for having created the great world we live in mm-hmm. and they imagined then that they could improve it in the event of a pandemic but there's one very important uh, thing that they left out which is uh, the basics of um, viruses and immunology and you know you you brought up the case of of new zealand and mm-hmm. it's it's a perfect case right so there's there's two ways you can look at, at at viruses actually there's only one way you can look at a virus which is that we've evolved with them for a million years and that we have these immune systems that absorb the new pathogen and and it fights us off in 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 a kind of a dangerous dance that we always do with viruses and viruses are, can be extremely dangerous like Ebola or they can be just paralyzing like polio or they can be uh, d- deadly like uh, H1N1 or Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu, blah, blah, blah. Um, or the coronavirus is a kind of a special uh, uh, thing of which the common cold is one variety. Mm-hmm. So this is a, 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 a classic case of a, of a relatively mild virus that you need to get and get over so you'll be st- stronger because of it. And I have friends of mine, it's just hilarious. People are, are loving getting um, antibody tests, you know. So when it comes back, uh, you have the antibodies for the virus. So you just, you want to get a t-shirt and walk around with it, you know, hoping that everybody would leave you alone now because there's not one case of reinfection anywhere in the world. Okay, that's 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 basic immunology, right? It was what you learn, you know, if you take a class, even in high school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but unless you're unless you're extraordinarily stupid and know nothing about the subject, you might revert revert to what I would call a cooties theory. And I don't know if you have cooties in South Africa. This is a an imaginary uh, imaginary bug that uh, ki- kids when they are first on the playground and it's mixed with boys and girls, uh, they don't want to be around each other because they're kind of scared. They're kind of interested in each other, but actually kind of scared of each other. So mm-hmm. they imagine that they have this virus called cooties. It's a big thing in American culture. And so this dictatress of, of New Zealand uh, adopted a cooties view of, of, of uh, viruses, which is that, um, uh, that we should just ban it from our shirts. We should yeah. make, it, make it go away. And, and if we're really mean to it, then it won't. Uh, it won't. It'll, it'll be scared because they'll be like, "Well, she's, she's kind of an awesome person with a with a with a, a great on camera uh, presence, you know, and a lot of power. So we better stay out of New Zealand. Let's let's go somewhere else. Let's go to South Africa again. So that's what she imagined that people were going to do. That <laughs> these viruses were going to do as if they're volitional creatures, and it was always idiotic. But of course, once she 
uh, once she locked down the entire country, and and more so than probably more so than actually most all governments in the world. In fact, I'm not even aware of a government in the world that was had as as locked down as New Zealand was in the first mm-hmm. what three weeks, four weeks, something like that. It was a brutal, mm-hmm. uh, b- brutal uh, a lockdown. On the stringency ex- index, they reached to somewhere like 85 percent. And then and then once the world press began to say, "Oh, isn't she wonderful? She did it the right way." Uh, New Zealand has crushed the virus. The virus will never bother New Zealand. The virus is very scared of New Zealand now uh, because she's just wonderful. Uh, then she began to open up the country. And then, yeah, everybody was you know, going back to the parties and the sports events and theaters and everything. And, and they were one of the most, now, then they were one of the most open countries in the world. And then, um, and, and on day 100 of no new infections, the New York Times said, New Zealand, uh, did it right. They're the safest country in the world from the virus, right? Day 100. Day 102, uh, there were four cases discovered in Auckland, right? And then she panics again, and boom, overnight, now it's a police state, and, and people are raiding the stores, and uh, you get arrested just for showing, you know, putting, stepping your foot outside of your apartment and so on. And now it's uh, under extreme lockdown. You can look at the astringency index, it's like, free, unfree, extremely unfree, very free, and now once again, extremely unfree. That looks like failure to me. Mm-hmm. Well, the virus is not gonna stay away from New Zealand. And in any, any case, if, if, even if you could, you wouldn't want it that way. Yeah. Uh, Sumetra Gupta from uh, Oxford University puts it this way. She says, you know, when, um, before modernity, before there was travel, before there was immigration and integration, that sort of thing, um, we would have these small tribes that lived in seeming safety, but their, ni- their immune systems were in very naive. They didn't, mm-hmm. they, they weren't exposed to many things. And so you would see a, a tribe doing just fine for 25, 30, 50, even 100 years, and the seeming safety and happiness. And then one little bad pathogen comes along and wipes them all out. Right. Because, because their immune systems are so weak. So that's basically what New Zealand was doing to its residents, was denying them access uh, to the virus to prevent their immune systems from building it into them, and, which is an outrageously arrogant thing that you can believe. You're going to mm-hmm. control the immune systems of an entire population? All right, couldn't work. Now they're trying to figure out where this virus came from. Well, guess what? Viruses are everywhere in the modern world, unless you want to revert to a primitive tribe, and that's not to be recommended at all. Uh, Gupta says something interesting. She says that because of global capitalism after uh, World War One, we have the strongest immune systems that's, that's ever existed. Global capitalism did this to us because we're always absorbing new pathogens because of all the immigration and the trade. And that's good. That gives us longer lives. That's one of the reasons we're living longer lives. So mm-hmm. literally, the dictatress, I always forget her name. Um, uh, Jacinda. Jacinda. Jacinda Ardern. Ardern. Yeah, I don't know if we have to use New Zealand accents or... (laughs) Aldern the Almighty, Aldern the Wise, the Holy. Uh, She she was doing her people a tremendous uh, disservice and actually doing a tremendous disservice to the world because Mm. what she's basically doing is you can bear the burden of herd immunity. My people sit back here being safe. All right, that's a violation of, of what Gupta calls the global social compact. Mm-hmm. contract it's like a violation of your contractual rights as a nation mm-hmm. to do something like that and that's what she did but it's not working i'm feeling real sadness for the people of auckland but mm-hmm. but but not sadness to see her grand experiment in immunology uh go up in flames just on the matter of of healthcare specifically uh, south africa 
we we locked down on the 27th of March and I will always remember lockdown because that's my birthday. So thanks South Africa for locking down on that date. Um, but in three months, and I wrote an article about this, uh, viewers, uh, just a reminder, you can find our articles on our website uh, and I'll link to that in the description below. But in three months or something like that, we added about 350 ventilators in the public healthcare sector. Three months of strict lockdown, of, an, of a curfew, of a ban on e-commerce, a ban on alcohol and tobacco sales, a ban on almost all economic activity. That's all we added. So part of the narrative from governments generally, and I'm sure I can generalize here, but this has been that we need to flatten the curve and we need to prepare the public healthcare sector the capacity. So we need to handle the flood of cases once that happens. But a question I have and something I, I hope more people look at and explore is just this assumption that it's on governments to provide healthcare for everyone. I think this has pushed a lot of governments to thinking we need to take care of this. If that assumption wasn't there in the role of government and society in the first place, I wonder if this all would have come about. I, I feel that's a big driving force behind a lot of what has happened. The fable could be in uh, 1968-69 in the United States, we have a we had a huge pandemic um, called the uh, it was called the Hong Kong flu, and um, in 1957 1958 we had the thing a big pandemic called the Asian flu. Uh, 116,000 100,000 Americans died in one, 116,000 and and the other. This is a, which uh, with a much smaller population base. Uh, and so proportionally, these are arguably more lethal than the current one. And the prevailing knowledge in the public health community at that time was everybody should stay calm, trust your doctor. Uh, viruses are something you deal with one person at a time. And otherwise, nothing changed, right? So in 57, nobody even noticed it. In 68, they held Woodstock. They had civil rights protests and drafts protests. and everything. Nobody cared about this, right? And the New York Times, in each case, ran one article each and the article said stay calm if you get sick go to your doctor that's it so but that was the prevailing knowledge at the time and whether or not uh let me put it this way i think your thesis is interesting what happens is governments once they take over healthcare systems then feel a, a kind of a responsibility uh maybe for for controlling pathogens when they show up um but you know that's that's bad politics and it's bad medicine and it's it's just it's it's dumb all around. Like, <clears throat> you could have a a socialized medical system as does Sweden, and still do something smart. So right. I don't rule that out. But I think you're right that it maybe it incentivizes uh, governments to imagine that they should be in charge of of health. The other thing is the government's always looking for an excuse to control their people. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's whether it's terrorism or or crime or uh, to deal with inequality. Mm -hmm. or to crush, crush business monopolies or whatever the excuse is, uh, the environment, you know, yeah. the, the changing global climate, whatever the thing is, government's always looking for some excuse to exercise more power. And this uh, arrival of a new pathogen was kind of waiting out there for a long time. They tried to do it in 2006, and then they tried to do it in 2009. There was even an effort in 2018 during what was actually a pretty serious flu pandemic in the U.S. Fauci was arguing for lockdown back then. I mean, this guy, Neil Ferguson, 
you know, back when the mad cow was there and then the mad pigeon and the mad squirrel and the mad hamster and I don't know, all these various diseases come. Each one he said, millions of people are going to die. <laughs> and so he was always advocating for lockdown. These lockdowners have been pushing for this stuff for like 15 years. It just so happened. I don't know why this one is versus other ones. So slow news day. I don't know. Somebody else. I don't know what, what gripped the, the world with this yeah. one virus. Maybe it was the pictures from Wuhan, you know? The, Maybe. The, and some of my friends say that this never would have happened without the 24-hour news cycle, right? Mm. So when I was growing up, we had three stations and 30 minutes of news a day. That was it. Um, and they never talked about viruses. Uh, now you have you know, hundreds of thousands of major uh, news channels that have to f get attention mm. all the time. And they're, they're blowing up your phone 24 hours a day. So, so, oh, another death, another death, another death, another death. And you see this all day and you start to panic. So yeah. maybe that's why. I'm not entirely sure. No, I'm sure it could be a, a range of, of factors. That was just one sort of theory I had. Mm -hmm. I wanted to to also ask you, and I'm going to put you maybe in an, in a difficult position in terms of forecasting and predicting, but just yeah. uh, one of my bigger concerns is uh, countries tending towards isolationism, towards restrictive policies, um, cutting off ties, uh, trade ties, as I know, of course, your president is, is wants to talk about and, and, and what he wants to do quite a lot. And I'm sure other countries will follow a similar route. So do you think we're going to see a rise in that sort of brand or flavor of nationalism? I'm hoping that this whole experiment in socialism will tell people and, and show people what happens when you take your freedoms for granted and when you let governments just do whatever they like. Um, but that might be a bit of a difficult question. Uh, yeah, it's hard to forecast. You know, this, this trend, tendency towards nationalism was already in play for mm. three years before the, before the lockdowns came. So Trump was already thinking that the way to, to bolster, uh, to, get, to get more jobs in America was to put up barriers to trade, which is wrong. Mm -hmm. But he's always believed that. He's believed that his whole life. Even back in the 80s, you can find interviews where he's saying we should stop trading with Japan. So he's a, he's a real fascist in that sense. Mm. Um, and then the left is always willing to go along with barriers to trade, too. So, and, and less so barriers to immigration, but these days nobody even cares about immigration. For God's sake, we have, you can't even get a, uh, a visa to come work in this country anymore. I mean, the, the lockdown has been so severe and outrageous that people's human rights are being violated and businesses that want to hire foreign workers now in the US, the, the consulates are not even open. So it's it just, it's, it's unbelievable. I don't know, you know, I'm like you in the sense that like, So I believe from the beginning of this that the result in the end would be more liberty, that we would see the egregious behavior of governments and see the destruction they're capable of causing, and that there would be like a revolt, you know, and, uh, and a new wave of politicians would come about that would uh, run on platforms against lockdowns, you know, and for opening up trade again, opening up immigration. That very well could happen, but I must tell you, there's something about the last five months that have kind of beat the optimism out of me. <laughs> All of this has lasted far longer than I imagined. I mean, I was looking at the data from New York. There's no pandemic in New York. There's no pandemic in New, in, in New Hampshire or Vermont or Massachusetts or Connecticut or Rhode Island. All right. It's, there's no pandemic. Uh, the curves are, are, f are flat. There's effectively no deaths. 
uh, even though they're trying desperately to turn every death into a COVID death, even if you die in a motor motorcycle accident, they're still having a hard time finding any deaths from COVID and no infections either. You can't just completely make up infections. So infections are almost zero, deaths almost zero. And that's been true for three and a half months. And yet, Broadway's closed, bars are closed. They're enforcing social distancing on the streets, a phrase by hate, by the way. Uh, they're enforcing I don't know if you saw, I just wanted to mention, I don't know if you saw that massive spike in COVID deaths in Beirut in the last few weeks. No, I hadn't looked at. I hadn't looked at Beirut. I try to keep up with all the, all the data, and I, I look as many as countries as I, as I can. And mostly, the mostly the curve is the same. It's true in most countries and most most uh, states in the U.S. Each one is a little bit of a, like a country in, of its own, but it's always the same pattern. It's like like an initial spike, mm -hmm. and then and then herd immunity comes about, and then it just goes away. There are some exceptions. Um, uh, a weird exception I don't entirely understand is, there's a few exceptions I don't entirely understand. Uh, Japan uh, appears to have had uh, two waves. And, huh? and I, I don't actually believe that though. I, I think if you probably, because I, I don't believe that actually, I don't believe that. I think that if you looked at the geographic uh, distribution of those, uh, of those curves, you would find that it's a mistake to treat the whole of Japan in a homogeneous way that probably uh, as with, um, I saw some analysis this morning of uh, I think it was Israel that showed that 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 uh, there's not two waves. There's it's actually just a, 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 a migratory virus, you know, mm -hmm. that hits one player. It just, just so happens that these these two different locations are all shoved into what we call one country. So um, so I don't think there's any exception to that. The other big exception to the rule is Taiwan, which is weird. It's like like just a handful of infections and almost no deaths and the whole uh, place even though they stay completely open mm -hmm. and i've heard it speculated I, I by the way one of the great things that's happened over the last five months is that i'm in, I'm in touch with uh, a vast number of immunologists virologists and epidemiologists and and medical doctors right because uh, they see me writing about this stuff all the time and they're always trying to like like help me and draw me attention to resources they always want to feed me stuff and they're afraid to speak out so right. i've been in close touch with all these people but i had talked to one uh, immunologist who speculates that Ty the Taiwan case is a result of the SARS outbreak that happened a few years ago and that SARS and COVID uh, have shared immunity um, between okay. them. And so that they, they already developed, up, developed antibodies to, to COVID, so there was never even a threat to Taiwan, which is fascinating because the World Health Organization was very strict in thinking that they controlled SARS too, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which in retrospect might have been a mistake, if you think about it. No, I think having the the sort of uh, the hindsight principle in mind will help us look at a lot of uh, cases where the who and local governments took the wrong path when they thought they could control a virus as such yeah. just a philosophical question i had for you um you know it's, it's always difficult to measure governments according to our sort of libertarian principles it's none of them will ever come up to that bar that we we hold for them uh, we look at what Sweden did, maybe how South Korea tried to track and trace and do that sort of thing. Just for you, you know, and, and I guess in the real world, quote unquote, because of course, for a lot of people, principles in the real world aren't uh, tied to each other. What to you would be the ideal government response to a pandemic like this? Or is it always a case of trade-offs and win-lose kind of thing? Uh, I think the ideal uh, government response um, it would be to do absolutely nothing mm. at all now uh, and by when i say nothing at all what i mean is permit 
the private sector to work, right? right. So, so in the case of the U.S., we had a serious problem early on. The, even though Trump was dismissive towards it, he was he was in a sense too dismissive. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so, so that so that when the World Health Organization sent uh, uh, millions of COVID tests. Um, he he just dismissed it on grounds that they're that the China and the World Health Organization are too close, closely tied together, right. and so we threw out all those tests. And so the CDC said they would come up with their own tests, and then banned private uh, testing agencies. So, and then their first test that came out with was completely botched; it didn't work. And by the time the private sector fixed it, CDC had withdrawn it. So we this was the this went on for like two months of this mm -hmm. BS. Now. Here's another Hayekian point here. When the new pathogen comes out, right, and the very first question you ask yourself is, uh, do I have it and how do I find out? Mm -hmm. So Americans for two months went without any way of discovering if they had the virus. That created a kind of panic. Uh, and it, like a, it was like a new kind of knowledge problem, right, in yeah. the Hayekian. Like we were, we were robbed information about the virus because of the government's actions in, in botching testing. So it was that initial uh, botch that, and by the way, I don't think testing, like it doesn't actually that matter that much, right? I mean, so what are you going to do if you find out if you have it? Ugh, freak out? No, you just drink some extra water and sleep a little bit. What the hell? You know, or if you don't have it, well, so what? You might get it in 10 minutes. So, you know, I think there's a sense, but there's a psychological element of testing that it brings a certain level of public comfort. So Americans were denied that, and that was part, of, uh, I think, of the, the panic. So, so when I say governments should do nothing, what I mean is let society work. You know, let the medical professionals do what they're supposed to do. Let the private uh, sector uh, handle the testing, tracing if they want it. I'm very suspicious of tracing. But, uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, free up the medical system, let doctors go where they're needed, let hospitals develop systems that allow themselves to scale. We don't have a free market healthcare system yeah. in the United States. Uh, hospitals have to go through 20 years of permits just to even build one. So mm -hmm. that's, that's why they don't, didn't scale well in New York. Uh, so you have to have a real active, serious, uh, medically minded scientific um, uh, health sector to manage pandemics, and then the government doesn't do, to do anything. But even if you don't have that, there's nothing government that can do to cause you to be healthy just because they have guns. I mean, that's just, it's, it's a, <laughs> that's not a good system. I thought if we give government all the force in the world, they can solve all our problems. With, uh... Well, that's, a, you know, that's, it's a funny uh, sort of superstition. And, uh, uh, and it's been believed for, for a long time, actually. Mm. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, um, you know, you think about one of the biggest government, the biggest earliest government at the 20th and the early part of the 20th century was the, was the, the Bolsheviks after they took over, right? So it's mm. a big revolution. And then the, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks shared power for a while. And then the Bolsheviks took over from the Mensheviks. And then there's the revolution. And suddenly Lenin finds himself in charge of the country. And he doesn't know what to do. He's like, all right, well, look, um, we're smart. We've got all the power. Uh, we've got all the resources, so let's have socialism. And people are like, well, what does that mean we do? He goes, well, just make the economy work like the post office. It's, it's no big, just, just make that happen. They're like, yeah, we don't even know how to do that, really, you know? And he's like, well, he's like, well, what should we do? And he says, well, I tell you what, here's one thing we could do is bring electrification to the whole country. And people are like, all right, that's a job. So, <laughs> so they botched that up. And so within a few years, almost everybody was starving. 
And so he got rid of it um, mm -hmm. after the, uh, and, and established a new economic policy in what, 1922, something like that, which was more or less restoring the market. And, and then, then after his death, the place became a complete dictatorship under Stalin. So anyway, the point is, there's a funny way in which for like 100 years, there have been lots of people who believed that if you give governments enough uh, power and they're run by smart, well-educated people with credentials and they have a lot of resources, that they can always outperform the rest of society. And that is a, a, the dominant presumption in the case of uh, the COVID lockdowns too. There's always this presumption that government's no better than, the, than, than people. And the thing is that it's um, never the case. And we need to get that through our heads and the whole world needs to learn that lesson. I don't know, I don't know. I mean, that's your sort of your job, it's my job to, to help people come to understand that. And at that, at some point, when enough of the population comes to believe that, maybe we'll we'll develop herd immunity to statism. We'll see. I I can't think of a better note on which to on which to end. Um, I that gives me hope, um, knowing that I'm part of a movement with people such as yourself and countless others who try and fight this fight. I think um, no matter how how dark it looks, I mean, yeah, liberty to me is is the highest value and the highest goal so we have to use everything that government does to try and show people in so many ways and there's different ways to do it articles podcasts movies series all the sort of stuff we we have to keep pushing back i think uh yeah especially coming from the south african perspective given the country's history in terms of oppression and government violence the liberty is simply too too great a thing to just give up in the face of of adversity um, um, and yeah, let me say too that thank you for what you do. You know, it's it takes. I hope people appreciate um, these days. It actually takes courage to do what you're doing and to speak out as you do. It's a lot easier to go along, and and I've been actually personally devastated how few of us there have been. I thought that we had a much more robust and strong, I guess you could say, kind of liberty movement mm. around the world. Mm. And I was shocked when the lockdowns first came along, American Institute for Economic Research seemed to be almost alone in speaking out against it. And in the meantime, a lot of a lot more people have come along, but still, to this day, there's way too much silence. Um, so I'm enjoying being in touch with the colleagues. We're, 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 we're few, but I, um, but I don't even think it's numbers so much. What matters is the message. And, yeah. and the, the message is um, infinitely reproducible thanks to the digital uh, world. So anybody can watch this podcast and maybe learn a thing or two, change their minds and come to be committed to the idea of uh, human rights and human liberties and human dignity again. So thank you for all you do. And I hope people appreciate just how much strength of character and courage it takes for you to do what you do. So thank you. Thank you. That's that's very high praise. Thank you very much. Um, viewers and listeners, on that note, uh, if you found value in this episode and indeed any of the other work we do at the Free Market Foundation, please like this video, please share it. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel. For those of you who prefer the audio versions, you can find our podcasts on Anchor FM. I'll uh, link to that in the description below. I'll also link to Jeffrey's uh, Twitter account and um, a few of his articles as well as the uh, the American Institute for Economic Research website. Please go and read some of the articles. Please share them as well. Uh, do some of your own research. As we always like to, to remind you, um, don't just follow uh, everything that we've said here. Do some of your own work and try and figure out for yourself um, what what you believe and uh, 
what sort of line of thinking you want to use in analyzing the world. Do you want to use the, the collectivist status paradigm or do you want to use the individualist progress freedom focused uh, line to analyze your life and what's going on around you? On that note, I will end. I wish all of you a good week ahead and a good weekend. Uh, look out for more episodes coming in the next few weeks. In the meantime, uh, stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.